Thank you, Don. As Don started that song, my wife, Debbie, leaned over to me and whispered in my ear, do you remember when we first heard that song together? It was at our wedding. <laughs> Thank you again. <laughs> we have a couple of guests here today. Les and Mary Jo Mentor were youth ministers here at our church way back in the day, long before I showed up. So would you be willing to stand and we could recognize you? Always good to have church family back. Many of you may remember, practically everybody was here, that last year sometime we did a series on Romans, or at least we began a series on Romans, and long about Thanksgiving, the holidays kick in. And so we stopped for Thanksgiving, and then we had messages for Christmas and in January, we had uh, four messages on discipleship, which we've picked out as our theme, our emphasis for this year. So if you were ever wondering if we're going to get back to Romans, we are fixing to, <laughs> as we say in Texas. Today, I'm going to give you a preview of Romans chapters 9 through 11, but I'm not going to go there except for one verse. But the reason I'm going to do that is because Paul digs in to the Old Testament. Now, if you're not familiar with Romans 9 through 11, it is the most neglected part of the book of Romans. And for many people, they either don't understand it or they don't figure how it fits into the argument of Romans. Some people think that it was just a sermon that Paul had, and he, he just wanted to insert that sermon there because he, you know, had to put it somewhere. <laughs> That's not the case at all. It fits into the book of Romans, but it really helps to understand the Old Testament, which is where he got almost all of 9, 10, and 11. He quotes from the Old Testament constantly. And primarily from one book, the book of Isaiah. We'll touch on that today and we'll touch on that next week as well. As I survey the Old Testament, I see two major themes that jump out at me. Maybe they will you as well. The first is creation. For example, Jeremiah 32, ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. God's creative act goes all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering 
over the waters. I like that. The Spirit of God was hovering. That word hovering in other places is used to describe a hen keeping her eggs warm and bringing them to maturity and to hatching. And that's, I think, a good description of what the Holy Spirit is doing here over the surface of the waters of the earth as God creates. God's creation included humankind. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. By the way, people struggle and they try to find value in humanity and, and they struggle to find that, but here it is. We are made in the image of God. That separates us from all the rest of creation. You know, some people think that we're no more value than seals or some other animal. I think seals are great, but humanity is the only one that's ever mentioned as being made in the image of God. We have immense value. Now, theologians struggle, what is that image exactly? And, and some people will say, well, you know, God has intellect, emotion, and will. And I think that's a pretty good start for the image of God. I don't think it's exclusively that. We have the capacity to reason. We have the ability to understand what is moral and what is not. These and many other ways may describe this wonderful image that we are created in. But let's be sure of this one thing. All people have value. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God's creation includes all things, Colossians 1. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. Why did God create us? we might ask. So he could have fellowship with us. He desires a relationship with us. And he wants to lavish his love on the people he created. He created out of love. He also created for his own glory. And I don't see those as in opposition. I see those in tandem. Because when we understand the love of God and the power of God in creating us, what should it lead us to do? To glorify our God, to honor him. Fellowship. What was his plan for us? As I said, to have fellowship with us. God wanted a people he could lavish his love on and enjoy us in deep intimacy. How did that go? At the beginning, 
of creation. It was fabulous, literally a paradise, heaven on earth. And in a way, that literally happened because God, if you'll recall, is described as coming to earth and walking in the garden with Adam, enjoying this deep intimacy unbroken by sin. But then, you know the story. Satan took the form of a snake. This angelic being who was tempted by his beauty and power and wanted to be like God, to be God. He rebelled against the one true God. And so this fallen angel opposes everything that God does, including us having fellowship with him. When Satan can, he wants to interrupt that, to block that, because he is opposed to God and everything he stands for. God demonstrated his love post-sin, after sin, by shedding the blood of animals and providing Adam and Eve animal skins to cover their now perceived nakedness. And we understand this was symbolic of something even more than that, that the shedding of the life blood of animals pictured the future shedding of Jesus' blood on the cross, which provided the only remedy for sin. But he begins to preview it with animal sacrifices something that he had to do in order that we could be restored in fellowship with him. Fast forward to Abraham and Sarah. God planned a new thing when he called out this couple to start a new plan, the nation Israel. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob, the father of 12 sons, who turned out to be the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. In time, a famine came, and God used one of those 12 sons, Joseph, to rescue the now 70 or so people within this family. And God used him in the circumstances around his life to bring the people to Egypt, to be in the Nile Delta, the primary place where they could raise herds, which was their, their way of bringing in income and providing for their families. And they were there, and they multiplied, and boy, did they multiply. And 400 years later, something happened. A pharaoh who did not know Joseph looked at this vast number of people and began to see dollar signs. And he thought that if he could enslave these people, he could build his cities of Ramses and other places, and he could have this vast free source of labor. So he enslaved these people, now numbering perhaps even in the millions. And not only that, as they had become so numerous, there was a fear of the Hebrews as well. A fear that if another nation invaded 
these Hebrew slaves might take sides with the other nation and help to bring Egypt down from within. And so they began to try to exterminate any newborn baby. It's a horrible thing. Well, the descendants of Abraham and Sarah call out to God in their sufferings. What does he do? Well, you know the story. He brings them out of Egypt. We refer to this as the book of Exodus, where God delivers his people from slavery. And first, he chooses a leader, Moses, to deliver them, to bring them out of slavery. God is opposed to slavery. Long story short, God uses a series of miracles to deliver his people. The exodus takes place. God has a plan. Rather than stay in the desert where he has brought his people out, God promised them a land. A land we call the promised land, where they have stayed and they remain to this day in the land we call Israel. It was called Israel back then. We call it Israel today. 3,500 years later, I believe demonstrating the truthfulness of God's promise. Well, remember why God created mankind? It was to have fellowship, right? Good. Fellowship with him. And God wants to lavish his love on people. And in turn, he wants them to draw close to him. So how did God's people do? Not good. God wanted to call out people, called out people to show the rest of the world what it was like to have a relationship with him. What it can be to have a blessed people who draw close to the Lord. People who are grateful for God's blessings on them. Who respond well by being trusting, obedient people who follow the one true God. Fast forward to Isaiah's day, the prophet Isaiah. In his day, this had not happened. Why? Because God's people had turned away from him. God hadn't failed. He's always faithful. But the people, Israel, God's chosen, Isaiah was sent to preach to a rebellious people, a disobedient people who always wandered away from the Lord. So Isaiah reminds them of what God had done for this nation in the past. Delivering them from slavery in a foreign country. And he tells us about it in Isaiah 51, where he speaks to the Lord. Isn't it you, Lord, who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. What famous event is this prophet referring to? The Exodus. 
Here, all these years later, centuries after the fact, Isaiah still remembers what great thing God had done for his people in creating them as a nation. Well, God brought the people right up to the sea, and they were chased by the Egyptian army. Pharaoh had a change of heart. What, what am I doing losing all this free labor? I got to go back and get them. And their backs are against the sea, and the whole Egyptian army, chariots, and all the soldiers are coming, and these untrained slaves are just going out. What do we do? And Moses is there, and God begins to work a great work. And God has the people stay there, and he blockades the Egyptian army to keep them from attacking. And all night long, this great wind comes up, and the sea is parted. And all night long, this wind is drying up the path. They literally pass through this path on dry ground. That's how dry the wind of God had made this seabed. He created a way for them to pass and be freed from their Egyptian oppressors. The Exodus is one of the most compelling stories in the Bible and is filled with valuable lessons that can be applied to our own lives. One of the primary takeaways from the book of Exodus is the power of faith. Throughout this book, Moses' faith is tested and he continues to demonstrate great faith. Now, some of the things that God asked him to do probably seemed like, Lord, why would you have me do that? First of all, he didn't feel comfortable speaking in public. And I think many people share that. You know, the number one fear that people have is said to be speaking in public. And Moses had that fear. Maybe all those years wandering the desert, he'd lost his confidence. Anyway, Lord, you can't really expect me to speak for you. So he had all sorts of questions, but nevertheless, he trusted God. And he leaned on God. And he was always faithful to God. At one point, God got so angry with the people as they turned away from him. Moses, step out of the way. Moses, I'm going to kill all of them. And I'm going to use your descendants and raise up a new nation. And what did Moses say? He had faith in God. He knew the revelation of God. He knew the promise of God. And I believe God didn't really intend to kill them because he knew what Moses would do, what Moses would say. Lord, you've made your great promise for this people. And if you bring them out in the wilderness and then kill them, your reputation will be sullied. You, they will save you. Well, he brought them out, but he was not able to deliver them from their oppressors. Moses stood between God and sinful people. By the way, there's a person in the New Testament that does the same thing. Who is the new Moses? Who is that? Christ. Who stands between a holy God and unholy people in order to bring them together to reestablish fellowship. 
So we could sum it up this way. God's chosen people called out to God who delivered them from slavery and brought them into a new land he gave them. They worshiped him for a couple of generations. But then as he warned them, they were tempted to follow other gods who are not God. And so fellowship with God was broken. Question. Was God's purpose in providing the exodus met by the people he chose? And the answer is no. The first exodus did not accomplish all the blessings for God's people because they ceased to follow him. As a result, judgment came. First, the Assyrians captured the northern 10 tribes. Then a century and a half passed and the southern tribes became corrupt and they too fell under judgment and they were carted off, many of them taken to Babylon, this foreign pagan nation, much like being in Egypt, foreign pagan nation in bondage. Well, again, when they were subject to Egypt, as when they were subject to Egypt, now under the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, uh, they are captives. And God promised a future deliverance, a new exodus. Isaiah and the other prophets predicted this time. Isaiah 51.10. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, and who made a road in the depths of the sea so that the redeemed might cross over? Now, they, God brought them through the Red Sea. They're out in the desert. Was that all God intended? No. He wanted more for them. So look at the next verse. Isaiah 51, 11. So, the redeemed of the Lord will, what? Return. They're in Babylon, like when they were in Egypt. They will return and enter Zion with singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. One way we can tell that Isaiah and the others were not talking about what happened in the past is the extent of what God is doing here. In the past, God delivered one nation, the nation Israel. In the future, what God will do, according to the book of Isaiah, will impact not just one nation, but the entire world. God will do a new thing, a new exodus, if you will. And it will spread throughout the world, bringing justice and God's reign. That's what he pictures. So in the future, God will work again. He will create a new exodus that impacts not just one nation, but other nations as well. Look at Isaiah 51, verse 5. 
My righteousness draws near speedily. My salvation is on the way. And my arm will bring justice to the nations, plural, multiple nations, not just one. The islands, the islands will look to me and wait in hope for my arm. Now, I've noticed this, this saying coming up again and again in Isaiah, and towards the very end, he makes it very clear. He's not talking about islands just off the coast of Israel. There are none. He's talking about islands in the distance, far away from Israel. In other words, he's talking about a worldwide impact that he foresees. So the Exodus created one nation, but it did not succeed in turning hearts to God. But there is in the future a time talked about by many of the prophets where God will not only impact the Jewish people, but other nations as well. God will bring justice to the nations and righteousness and peace. Do you think we're there yet? Has God failed? Or will he do a new thing? Yeah. Well, we'll talk more about what I've introduced today, the new exodus that God has planned that is particularly detailed in the book of Isaiah, but also in Jeremiah and other places and occurs in the New Testament as well. But for the remainder of this message, let's look at how the Bible views God's miracle we call the exodus. I want to give you some Old Testament verses that describe it. Now, I could just go, I could spend all my time in the book of Exodus, and we might think, well, that's just one book. But I wanted to demonstrate to you that this whole event from beginning to end is talked about in the other books of the Old Testament. As I, as I said earlier, I think there are two great events in the Old Testament. One is creation, which is referred to over and again, and the other is the Exodus. The Exodus is a defining moment where God demonstrates his power and shows what he wants to do. So here are some Old Testament verses about the Exodus. Well, leading up to the Exodus, the Jews were experiencing hard times. 1 Kings 8, For they are your people and your inheritance, which you brought forth out of Egypt. Out of what? That iron smelting furnace. What a description of what the Israelis are experiencing as they're in captivity in Egypt. It was like being in a furnace. Israel is suffering. And God would bring them out to safety. So God provided Moses. First Sam 12. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried out to the Lord for help. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors up out of Egypt and settled them in this place. Next, God powerfully delivered this nation in waiting. 
We'll go to Psalm 77 for this. By the way, there are many psalms that picture this great event in poetic language as this one does and just speak of how powerful it was. Listen to this. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. And he goes on. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth, probably speaking of lightning. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. <coughs> your path led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. Though your footprints were not seen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Well, God provided leaders, but he did much more. Nehemiah 9. Thank you. <clears throat> Nehemiah 9. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the Red Sea before them, and it goes on to talk about how they passed through on dry ground. And then as they were in the desert that God led them, you know, they were there for 40 years, and, and every time that they were to, um, to pack up their tents and head to a new place, God would lead them. And the way he led them was a pillar of cloud by day. And at night, it became a pillar of fire. Can you picture that, if you will? God's manifest presence right there before you. Wow. Awesome time. They got to see great things. It was never God's intent to just leave them into the desert. God had bigger plans for them. A land. Psalm 80. This is addressed to God. You, God, brought a, what? A vine out of Egypt. He pictures the people of Israel as a vine. You drove out the nations and planted it. God's miracle at the Exodus was merely a first step that he planned. He pictures Israel as a vine and God, like, picks up this vine and moves it where he wants it, to the land of Israel. And he disperses other nations, which he'd given them 400 years to repent of their sin. And they did horrible, horrible things, not just worshiping false gods, but all sorts of uh, debauched sin and all sorts of evil practices like 
murdering babies. They found massive burial grounds for infant babies that were charred to death as an offering to a false god. God dispersed them, and God planted his chosen people in the land. And like a vine, they grew and they multiplied. Yet, in time, things turned from good to bad to horrible. Judges 6. Yahweh. Remember that song that Don did for us? Yahweh, I know you are near. Yahweh is God's Hebrew name. Yahweh sent a prophet to the children of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us over to the hand of Midian. These raiders would come in and they would invade. And if you had camels, they would take it. If you had flocks, they would take them. If you were harvesting crops, they would steal your crops. Uh, Gideon was trying to hide so that as he threshed the, the wheat, and the chaff fell, uh, the chaff blew away, and the wheat fell to the ground. He didn't want the Midianites to see him because they would come in and they would steal his food. And he's saying, Why is all this? Well, what had happened was that the people had drifted from God. As Israel drifted, God withdrew his blessings. Second Chronicles 7. The people will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them out of Egypt, and have embraced what? Other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. Instead of turning away from these false gods like Baal, like the Ashtaroth, like Molech, instead of turning away from them, they had turned away from God to follow them. And so God withdrew his blessing, his protective hand. Isn't there a lesson there for us? I mean, we all fall short. We've already talked about that in this service. I do, we all do. Either in thought or word or deed, we all fall short and we have to repent. We have to come back to God. And he is pleased to welcome us back when we genuinely repent with a good heart. He loves us. He wants to restore that fellowship. What happens if we don't? Like the Israelites, he's likely to withdraw his blessing. I know Christians who have turned away from the Lord. And I have seen that after a space of time, God is very patient, isn't he? But after a space of time, God withdrew his protective hand of blessing. And they have suffered as a result. So what's the answer for us? 
Turn back to God. Come back to him in genuine repentance. Honor him as God, respect him, and he welcomes us back. He wants us to have fellowship with him. Jeremiah 7 continues this thought. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Go ahead, add to your burnt offerings and your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. This is what he gave them to do right after they came out of Egypt. Verse 22, for when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, I spoke to them. I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices. He had something more. But I gave them this command, obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. Friends, the Exodus is amazing. And when God does something this fantastic, there is an expectation that the people that enjoy the benefit will turn to God, will honor God, will praise him, will want to follow his path and grow closer and closer to him. And yet we must all recognize we all fall short. We all have a fleshly nature. We all have a magnet inside of us that has a drawing to evil. And yet God can give us deliverance. So let's turn to him. He has the power to deliver us. Let's turn to him and not be like the Israeli people who did not turn and suffered because of it. Well, we've been through just a sampling of the Old Testament passages that speak about this great event over and over again. But then you turn to the New Testament. It is also referred to. As I said, this is a preview, kind of setting up the stage for our next series beginning in Romans 9. So let's look at one of those verses, Romans 9, 17. For scripture says to Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of the Exodus, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. We'll be looking at Romans chapter 9 very soon. The point I want to make and I want to drive home is that the New Testament is not divorced from the Old Testament. Paul is going to quote extensively from the Old Testament as he deals with chapters 9, 10, and 11 in Romans, but primarily from one book, the book of Isaiah, which talks about these events and talks about this new plan that God has, a new exodus as we have called it. And we'll be saying more about this. 
I want to read this from Jack Wyman. With God, there is no drift, no quandary, no unknown future, no powerlessness or frustration. There is instead a determined, exquisitely timed, and orchestrated divine plan for each of us, for all of us. It's a perfect plan. It's a beautiful plan, not subject to change, weakness, or fault. Because it's God's, it's good. It's going to happen all according to his plan. This isn't a momentary improvisation punctuated by now what? Can you imagine God doing that? Uh-uh. <laughs> It's the security, beauty, and confidence of our eternal future. Beulah Land is much more than a song. It's a real place prepared for us by the one who we fully trust. I have some applications for us this morning. The first one I want to challenge us, and I'm sure many of you do this, but I bet we can all do better. That first challenge is read the Bible. It's God's love letter to you. We've just celebrated Valentine's Day this week, haven't we? Think back in time, if you will. Maybe you were in high school and maybe you're a guy and you got a letter from your girlfriend or you're a woman and you got a letter from your boyfriend in high school. You got that letter, probably made your heart beat a little faster when you get to the mailbox. And you open up and you read it and you just analyze every word and you reread it. You're really moved by all this. Well, understand, folks, the Bible is God's love letter to you. There are riches talked about in this letter that nothing in the world can compare to that he has redeemed us, that he has forgiven us, that he's established a relationship with us. It's so intimate that God's very own Holy Spirit has come to indwell inside of each of us. Wow. He loves us that much. Next, read the Old Testament. You can't get to know the God of the Word by reading only 25% of what he has written. The Old Testament is 75% of the Bible. Now, I'm a New Testament Christian. I think the principles of the New Testament are what guide us. The commands of the New Testament challenge us. But please remember, we can learn a great deal about the God of the Word in the Old Testament. And it's important for us to have this foundation or otherwise we're probably not going to understand the New Testament. And the Old Testament relates to you. How many here have problems from time to time? <laughs> yeah, okay. Did Israel have problems like when they were back in Egypt? Yeah, they had problems problems. They were huge. It seemed insurmountable. And yet, God was able 
to bring them out. You may be having a problem with this person, or you may be having a problem with this or that organization, whatever it is, God can help you. He has the power to deliver from bondage, and he has the power to help you in each and every circumstance in your life. So you got a problem, and you call out to the Lord, which is what God wanted Israel to do, because he wanted to answer. So you call out to the Lord, and I wish I could say, boom, instant progress, you know, your problem solved in a day. I don't know. I really haven't experienced that too often. <laughs> Usually, it's a process, but God answers, and that's a beautiful thing. I can tell you, I've had some big problems in my life at certain times. And I did cry out to the Lord. Sometimes, I can remember one time, a long time ago, when I took walks pretty much every day for like three months, crying out to the Lord. And then he brought the solution. And it's wonderful when he does, when God works and it takes time sometimes, but when God works, you get the blessing, and it's worth it. Think of it. If God could deliver his people Israel from the most powerful nation on earth, can he deliver you? He can do that. So call out to him. And how about teaching us how to live? The Old Testament can give us insight. I was preparing this message and I ran across Isaiah 59, first two verses. The first is much more familiar. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Now, we like that. God, he has the power. His hand speaks of his power, and his ear speaks of the fact that he knows our situation. That's encouraging. But then there's verse 2. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so he does not hear. I'm speaking to Israel, but I think there are Christians today for whom this is true. Sin can separate us from God and from the fellowship available to us from our God. Sin separates us from God but rather, may our God separate us from our sins. <laughs> may that be the situation. Even though Israel's sin was dark and sinister, yet God had a future plan to deliver Israel. And I close with Nehemiah chapter 9. The man of God addresses God and says, for in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them. 
for you are a gracious and merciful God. Father God, I thank you that you are gracious and full of mercy. Lord, I thank you so much that you are patient with us because you know that we are but dust and you know, Father, that we fall short. And yet, Father, it is your ever-present desire to restore us to fellowship, to help us to enjoy a walk with you that brings joy, peace, hope, and just is a wonderful experience. So, Father, I pray that this simple message today might challenge us to walk closer to you, to draw close to you by reading your word and praying at that time, and having this communication, this talking and listening between you and us, that we might know your will for us, that we might gain insight and wisdom on how to live. Father, I praise your name that you are always available, and I rejoice in you, Yahweh, my God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.